welcome to High Action. I'm Perry Smith. I'm Will Brom. I'm John Story, and together we're the New West Guitar Group. On today's episode of High Action, we're going to feature the great Peter Bernstein. A special thanks to our Patreon members and our sponsors who make this podcast possible. For more information on High Action and how you can get involved, please visit www.newwestguitar.com slash highaction. All right. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to High Action. This is episode 13. We are coming at you the day before Thanksgiving. So wherever you are, wherever you're listening, thank you for tuning in. And I hope you're getting ready for a wonderful holiday. For a little treat for everybody, we have this incredible episode that we recorded earlier in the summer with the great guitarist Peter Bernstein. And yeah, John, it was kind of a trip to listen to this episode that we recorded three, four months ago and kind of put it all together and really kind of digest the incredible artistry of, of Pete Bernstein. You know, what what did you think about it? Yeah, well, and going back and listening to how we were interviewing our guests in July, you know, it's funny, we were still in the very, very start of the pandemic, and here we are, it's November, and uh, we're, we, uh, well, we, you know, things have changed a little bit with the landscape of this, but musician to musician, it was always interesting to talk to everybody and see what they were up to, see how they were handling it, and a guy like Pete, who's such a legend, and we think of him as a road warrior and someone who's in Europe and in Asia, and he's out there with Larry Golding trio or his own projects um to me it was kind of hard to picture a guy like pete bernstein just at home you know for this time so it was great to get to talk to him and again he's someone who we've all known for a lot of years i met him when i was a teenager and he was always such a very encouraging super cool guy to meet um, but such a titan in the jazz guitar world. And I can't think of a modern guy next to somebody like Kurt Rosenwinkel, who maybe his sound has been copied more by young players, you know? Yeah. yeah. And I mean, if you're going to copy someone, that's oftentimes the highest form of flattery. Uh, yeah. And, you know, certainly, God, I was trying to copy Peter Bernstein for various phases of my guitar development. In some ways, I probably still am, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, but he's just such a terrific player. And so many of his solos, I think, resonate with uh, us as guitar players, because it's an approach that we can kind of understand, at least on the surface, because it's a little bit more melodic than a lot of other guitar players. You know, clearly his sophistication is so deep, though, once you really start to unpack it. Um, Well, what did you think about getting a chance to kind of revisit this episode? Well, basically piggybacking off what you and John were saying, I think Pete has arguably one of the best 175 sounds ever. Yeah. Like just his touch and like hearing, if you hear him play duo with, with Christian McBride on my ideal, like just his little, he's, he's just, what an amazing touch on a 175. So it's kind of hard not to go through a phase where you're literally just trying to like pull off (laughs) some kind of version of that, but Mm -hmm. I'm digressing from your question. So what I took away from this, (laughs) A, how down to earth Pete is, yeah, right? How easy he is just to chat with. And I mean, he's the kind of player, like John said, we've listened to him so much compared to talking to him. It's almost weird. Like this is the voice behind the voice, you know? Right. Um, And it's just, it's so cool when you see how down to earth a a world-class artist is, you know, it's inspiring. Yeah, so you guys, you live in LA, if you lived in New York, you would see him around in in the before (laughs) times and and you'd understand, yeah, he is always a really down to earth guy, which is cool because he's such a recognized, phenomenal player. Mm -hmm. Man, he had one of the funniest stories um, about the reason he made this solo guitar album. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I was surprised. Yeah, that we all really love. That's a funny story. So for listeners, we won't give it away. But we were definitely cracking up about that. You know, I I want to say one thing too about Pete. You know, for years he said he struggled with solo guitar, and I think a lot of guitar players can relate to that. Like solo guitar is so difficult, you know. And so if you're out there and it's something that you're struggling with too, just understand that so many of these great cats that we interview, including ourselves, have gone through a lot of struggles with solo guitar. Now to Pete's credit he's made an incredible album playing solo so you know it's a hurdle it's a hurdle that everybody can overcome if they just stick to it but it can be kind of challenging at first um john do Uh, you have a have some announcements for us uh you know 
I can't think of something our listeners would want more than a high action t-shirt, you know, or a high action coffee mug mm. or a high action sweatshirt or even a high action pick accessory bag. <laughs> because, you know, it. we have all your Black Friday needs and you're shopping local. I mean, local these days is just at your keyboard, but, you know, click away local and uh you know amazon is not involved in this uh we have set up a teespring store and you can go on there and buy various swag that has the high action logo the new west logo and all of that is going directly towards us producing the podcast so you can get your mom a really nice coffee mug that's got the new west guitar group and high action logo all over it she'll be thanking you for holidays to come that's good information thank you john Yes, uh, check out our merch on Teespring for all your holiday gift items. Right. Without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful episode with the great Peter Bernstein. Well, great. So I'm recording. I'm recording in okay. Zoom. So we're all set here. Perry, if you want to go ahead and take the floor. And man, Pete, so yeah. stoked you're here, man. Thank you so much for doing this. <laughs> yes, Peter, thank you again so much for doing this. It is so great to see you. Man, thanks for having me. It's great to have some contact with the, uh, the musical community. It's just so, uh, you know, I can really count on one hand the number of times I've taken the guitar out of the, out of the house to play. We I know we go living... everywhere. We used to go everywhere together, you know. I know. <laughs> and now I just feel bad for her, you know. She's just home all the time. At least I get to go to the store, do laundry, fun things like that. But yeah, I... you know, I do. I do have hope. I do have faith that we'll get through this, and something great will come out on the other side. I think yeah. I have to believe that, you know. That's right. Can only look forward to, uh, you know, how long it will last. But uh, it's it's a scary thing, and you know. Yeah, I'm right there with you, man. You reevaluate you know adjust perspective you know well part of adjusting our perspective has been creating this podcast uh we've just been thrilled about the number of, of musicians and guitar players that have agreed to talk to us during this time it's, it's really pretty remarkable for us and i just want to start out by saying how much of a pleasure it is to really have you on this podcast you know i've been a huge fan of your playing for a long time i know john and will have as well you know, I think our listeners will appreciate this too, but it's really impossible, I think, to overstate the positive influence that you've had on the jazz scene. I know you're a very humble guy, but I hope you understand well, this. And, and uh, I appreciate that. I just, more than anything, I just feel lucky to have gotten some situations with great players and, you know, was able to uh, get some real experience, you know, Absolutely, playing, yeah. Playing with, with, with heavy cats of all, you know, different, just all such different personalities, which is, you know, like that's the lesson, you know. It's like, yeah. you got to be a personality, you got to be yourself, you know, that's the whole idea, you know. While being able to be in situations where, uh, you know, you can be musically sociable and add to the, add to the so that's, that's been the biggest, uh, and I've, I've been lucky to be able to get that experience, as I say, and a lot of it, you know, I was in over my head, a lot of it, the lesson for me to learn there was, you know, how much I had to, you know, what I had to try to get together and how I had to learn to be a part of certain situations. And some of that is, you know, recorded, <laughs> like all my struggling and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, all those, all those record dates were, uh, were a chance to learn and a chance to, uh, you know, see how I fared in, uh, you know, the, yeah. the, deep, the deep waters, you know. And, yeah. and here at this point, I have no excuse. <laughs> not to have some shit together. I mean, just, you know, just that's basic. It has nothing to do with, I mean, yeah, we all work hard at it. We all have various levels of talent. I, I was lucky to be around some phenomenally talented people that put in perspective to me, like, oh, man, you don't have the kind of natural gifts that these guys have. You know, talking about Brad, Meldow, and being around Larry. Guys who sounded good when they were 14, like professional good when they were 14. Yeah. Probably. Uh, I met Larry, he was about 16, and Brad, I met, he was 19 or so. But, you know, just freaks, just basic freaks, and a lot of other kind of people later on. But just coming up, I, it was a good lesson of, like, uh, everyone's got to work at it, and they're great because they work at it, but, you know, you have to work at it. 
because right. you don't have the just the born the born with thing that I've just seen. I've seen you know evidence of that with those guys in just in general, just listening to music, just how much they can hear, playing with them, how quickly they can adapt to situations. So I just feel lucky that I wasn't like you know kind of isolated and 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 uh, encouraged you know and, and complimented in the sense that I was like get get a get a false sense of uh, well, what you, know, you have to get. I think you know? a lot of people put you in that that category. You know, with guys like Larry and Brad, I think that's how we look up to you well, as well. You you know? could, I mean, and, I've been lucky to be associated with those guys, but but uh, and I'm not saying it's it's uh, it's just a fact. You know, it doesn't even mean necessarily that the person with more natural gift is going to make better music than the other people that have to work. Right. I'm just saying, like, right. just seeing like. It's just like sports, you know, who yeah. can just like run the fastest without, tr- you know, really training or throw the ball the farthest without technique yeah. lessons, and stuff. just like natural ability. So, you know, that's that's the always and, the thing that's that's amazed me about those people. And I was happy for the aptitude that I had, but it did put in perspective that, you know. I, yeah, absolutely. I, I had and to I, work at it. You have to work at it and you have to work at it anyway, you know. And I think, you know. Each instrument presents its unique challenges within jazz, and, and certainly guitar has those challenges as well. And that's true. You know, when I when I was in high school, I was really caught up in trying to figure out a lot of those challenges, and right. uh, that's when I first kind of heard about Peter Bernstein. When I first heard you on a record. It was on uh, Larry Golding's trio record called Moonbird, and uh, yeah. I had, you know. I think this was a 99 release, right? 1999. Yeah, I think, right. right. Sounds about right. You know, at the time, I'm in high school. I'm thinking, like a lot of high school guys, I was listening to Michael Brecker. Right. I think Larry was on a a Michael Brecker record, and that's why I started checking out. I I remember that. He was on Times of the Essence, I think. And I started checking out some of Larry's stuff, and that's when I heard Moonbird, right? And I just want you to know, when I heard you playing on Moonbird, it was like like a breath of fresh air. You know, of hearing wow. guitar playing, it was really, really extraordinary. You have this just wonderful combination um, that I want to kind of get into, with just a beautiful sound and just ridiculously hip phrasing. Uh, it's it's really just a wonderful thing to Thanks, hear. Man. And you know, you're you're phrasing full of space, plenty of sustain, uh, always over the bar line, but really laid back in the groove. Um, there's so many musical things I want to ask you about, but first. In this podcast, we kind of like to get to know the player behind the instrument a little bit. And I know you were born in New York City in the, in the late 60s. And can you just talk a little bit about growing up in New York in the 70s and 80s and what, what the city was like? Well, my first musical going out years were, I mean, late, late in high school, you know, when you're kind of old enough to kind of sneak into places. And I remember going to, to uh, 55 Bar to see Mike Stern trio and, and when I was still in high school. and the Vanguard and saw, you know, all kinds of people, Don Pullen, George Adams group and Barry Harris and sort of Bradley's. That was a little bit later, but I, I was lucky to see a lot of stuff, a lot of music. I saw Weather Report at the Palladium when I was still in wow. high school and Sonny Rollins and, uh, you know, just I saw Miles at, a, at the Cool Jazz Festival at that time in 80, whenever it was, 85. So... Uh, and also went to blues clubs. I saw Albert Collins at Tramps. I went there with my with my dad, and my dad took me to see Joe Pass at the Village Gate. So I was just growing up in New York City. I was able to have musical, you know, just seeing giants. You know, I remember seeing Max Roach at Sweet Basil and, yeah. and uh, Nat Adderley group with Cobb and all these people. And just like yeah. just so many things that just were like impactful experiences. This, w- so, this would have been the 80s, like early This is 80s, late, eight, right? mid to late 80s. Yeah, mid so I was in high 80s, school. Right. I graduated high school in 85, I guess. 85. Right. I mean, I was studying, I was playing blues and rock, and I just heard about different guitar players in other uh, other bags. You know, just, uh, you hear about Segovia, you hear about, uh, yeah. you know, Django Reinhardt, and who's that guy? Who's Charlie Christian? You know, who's this young guy? You know, Pat Metheny, and different, you know, I'm just like checking out different things, and got into jazz kind of through the guitar, listening to Charlie Christian, of course, but before that, even, you know, Wes Montgomery and hearing yeah. Smoking at the Half Note and hearing the yeah, blues yeah. on there and saying, man, that's a blues, but what's all the other sh- shit yeah. going on? Like, I don't hear that. What, what are they doing? What is that? 
And then hearing Charlie Parker, I'm like, no, what is that? You know, and what are they playing? And it just made it a, a goal to just figure out that language, you know, and it really, after a while, it wasn't guitar centric. It was more about, you know, the piano players. I got into Monk and I love Monk because yeah. that reminded me of, had a feeling of ragtime. I remember hearing that song, Monk played Light Blue. Like that, that has that feeling to it. And uh, that was so familiar from, from loving uh, ragtime music and just just it got got back into jazz through the horn players and through the composers mm -hmm. and and piano players singers and all that you know and guitar too but not as guitar centric you know right and the world didn't become about the guitar anymore it became about jazz mm -hmm. thing and then so like most guitarists today you know we're kind of in this era of going to school going to colleges and earning degrees and, and such and you, know, you have a I think kind of a very interesting college path or journey includes some different institutions, some, some time yeah. abroad. And I was just wondering if you would talk a little bit about these colleges and these opportunities and the sure. choices that kind of led you to these different places at that time in your life. Well, yeah, I, uh, I, there weren't that many options really. So I, what I, uh, was attracted to was Rutgers, which was, uh, you know, hour and a half out of the city in New Brunswick, New Jersey. And they, I basically went there to study with Ted Dunbar. Yeah. And Kenny Barron was also a teacher there who I had seen with Sphere and like, saw, you know, knew, knew his playing. And I was like, well, that seems to be the way to go. Go to the school with the, with the heaviest cats, with, to, to learn the music from the musicians. I studied mm -hmm. with Larry Ridley there. Keith Copeland was there. William wow. Fielder, the great trumpet teacher who taught Winton and yeah. uh, Terrence Blanchard and a lot of people, Terrell Stafford. Uh, it was a great, not so much of a jazz, teaching them jazz, but teaching them how to play the trumpet. And he was a jazz guy too, but had a classical background in trumpet. So, And Sahib Shahab was there running the big band. And I remember that year at Rutgers was heavy. We had Benny Carter come and play with wow. the big band. Jimmy Heath came and played with the big band. I mean, it was like Curtis Fuller came to give a, you know, because there were the cats there, other, right. you know, cats came through. And so it was all just the beginning of the process of seeing these people that were not just you know, names on a record jacket, but like, this is, you know, get a sense of their humanity, you know, their, right. as, as, as they were as people and how they carried themselves and all that. So besides that great stuff, I could have stayed at Rutgers and, and I was a little intimidated by Ted, or very intimidated by Ted and his whole teaching thing. And it was like a, I kind of felt like if I, after the first year, I kind of had a chance to go to, uh, well, I, I visited a friend at William Patterson College and they were having jam sessions every night and had okay. great players. I heard Bill right. Stewart and a bunch of good drummers and great players. And I was like, wow, Rutgers was a problem. We couldn't have access to rooms to have sessions at night. I practiced a lot, but we couldn't yeah. really play yeah. together. Same and there was us. a feeling of like, no, you even though they had that. all these prestigious jazz musicians in the faculty, the classical part of the music department just kind of like, we're not going to have these, can't have jam sessions in the music building at night. Things would be getting out of hand, you know. Right. Patterson seemed like a much healthier place in terms of people playing. And it's like, this is what I want to do, is play with people. And I had some friends that were there. And that was, and I went there the second year. And I just figured with, with Dunbar, and it turned out to be true, like, I got enough from him in one year that I'm going to be working on this the rest of my life, you know. <laughs> yeah. And I even got a sense from like, well, once you're in it two years and you go through four years of TED, it's, it really is like a... A very extreme thing, you know, and, and uh, I, I love Ted so much, but I kind of felt like I had his voice in my head. Yeah, you needed something different, right? Well, I, it, it wasn't that I, I mean, just there were other really positive qualities about William Patterson. So right. I just got the chance to, uh, to, to move to Patterson and keep studying Ted's stuff, which I did. And yeah. it's still, I mean, still is, is, is in my head. I was right yeah. about that Ted made such an impression on me that, you know, that's heavy, man. He's still yeah. my teacher. You know, he was still my teacher, you know, and, and it was cool. He gave me his blessing. Like, okay, if you don't want to be here, that's cool. Mm. You know, I'm going and checking in with him, having a few lessons at his place, you know, over the, yeah. over the next years, I should have more of course, mm -hmm. but, uh, right. but Ted was just huge, you know, did you, did my development and stayed with me. So. Did you feel like getting to William Patterson and then uh, I think eventually to new school? Did you feel like that really helped you blossom and connecting with well, some I was of the just, musicians? Yeah, I was you... lucky to meet different people. Like that's the right. thing. You go to a different school and there's a whole another scene. And, and uh, the thing about William Patterson was uh, there were so many great players to play with. And I was, you know, I met Jesse Davis there, you know, right. 
lifelong friend. Yeah. I met Farnsworth there. I met a lot wow. of people there that are still in my musical life, you know. Yeah. And Bill Stewart, of course, and and just like getting a chance to really play with with players on a higher level. And that was also a great school. Rufus mm-hmm. Reed was the director of the school. And jazz seemed to have more of a place. No one went to William Patterson to study classical music, whereas Rutgers had a strong classical program. I see. Patterson was about the jazz because Thad Jones yeah. had started the program, I think, in the oh, mid-70s, okay. and Rufus took it over. And it was, I got to study with Harry Leahy there. It was really a heavy cat. And uh, yeah. Bucky Pizzarelli was there. Oh, man. And wow. uh, it was very cool. And on Fridays, I had no classes at Patterson, so I would just take the bus in the morning and go hang out at the new school on Friday, which was just Jones. like whatever happened. I mean, it, it, Monday through Thursday was that too, but Friday was especially like the loose day. And so that yeah. was Arnie Lawrence who started the school, basically just having different people come by the school and have a workshop and very loose. I mean, new school was like, not even a school. It was just like yeah. hang with Arnie and his, and his friends. And his friends, yeah. he brought in Jackie Byard. Wow, and he brought wow. in all these incredible people. Wow, wow, wow. So Patterson was an option, but I, I kind of felt like new school was, and I had, was hanging around a little bit so I met Arnie and they and I was able to get you know a good Them scholarship all. there and it was, the school was only like 14 people the first right. two years and then the third wow. year when I went it expanded to like 29 or something like that it was just a very small program wow. it was just cool because it was New York and it was yeah. exciting because it was like this loose school in New York Donald Berger was teaching there as well as I'm Kenny good. Werner wow. all the stuff in Kenny Werner's book was just like he was testing that material out <laughs> yeah. on us and for what was yeah. jazz theor- jazz harmony class you know wow. so we heard his whole routine and all the stuff and yeah, I know you know and just like still. so many great perspectives and and mainly was you know that's where I met Jimmy Cobb yeah. him yeah. and Jim Hall were the two you know really the two people that I had the most can, you know, experience with yeah can we talk a little bit about Jim Hall I mean he's just a, a hero of all oh, of man. ours and uh, I think you know, obviously one of the most influential jazz guitarists in the last century. And absolutely, uh, what can you kind of share with us about you well, know, his... Well, he was teaching at the New School because he lived around the corner on 12th Street between 5th and 6th Avenue. And the New School was, at that time, the first jazz department was on in the Parsons Building on 5th Avenue between 12th and, and, uh, and 13th Street. So mm. I know, I'm sure it went down, Arnie was in the neighborhood and saw Jim Hall and on the street and it's like Jim you live around here and she said yeah he said you got to come teach at my school if you live around the corner and that was probably the reason Jim was like sure I'll come check it out and uh, they convinced him to come in there and teach uh, I guess he taught this ensemble that Larry was in and he taught the second year when I was there he taught a guitar class which was just you know seven or eight guitar players hanging out with Jim and that was when I got to really get you know spend some time around him and see and I say this about the teaching because he, he was not an academic type of teacher and he studied composition in school but I think okay. he learned jazz by playing out with people it came up in that in that time of course yeah so his whole approach to jazz education was very you know very loose there was no like here's my stuff you got to learn all this stuff and check out these patterns and it was mo- all just concepts talked about motivic development playing one idea talked about things that were just kind of were about how to improvise, like how to limit your options so that you have to do more with less. Like that was his thing. Like try to play uh, a solo on a tune based on one interval. And that's it. Just just something yeah. to, to f- like a puzzle, to focus your mind on something to keep you from just like developing your little muscle memory things. Yeah, wow. And that was his thing, detuning the guitar mm-hmm. to right. play by ear, which was really out there. Playing on one string so that cut off all your position patterns and stuff like that and Again, like he was really about the ear, and I saw firsthand like his ears were just incredible. The way he played behind all of us—I mean, that was the class. Was Jim comping for all us guitar players, yeah, and then one of us better. would try to comp for him, kind of, and or sometimes we would play with each other. But that's how we really sounded was how when we played with each other. When we played yeah. with Jim, everybody sounded like much better because he was yeah. able to make people sound better the way he accompanied them. And just I remember thinking playing a tune with Jim was like, wow, that was like. That's the best rhythm section I ever played with, you know, just him. And it was like, because he pushed you and she was challenging you, but at the same time, he was so supportive. And it came from, you know, two things, you know, the knowledge of how to, his feel, knowledge of of the forms and the tunes and what to play and how to voice chords and stay out of your way. But also this, the other side of just like 
empathy of just like wanting the people around him to sound good, like just being a generous, supportive, you know, unselfish musician. You yeah. know, in it, playing with uh, we we couldn't play. You know, a couple of us like had our couple things we could do, and everything. Every time someone did something that caught his ear, he would make he would stop and make the students say, "Well, what was that? What are you doing there? What are you thinking about when you when wow. you do that? Like, where did you get that? What is that?" He was genuinely interested because he was just like, "What can I steal from these punks?" You know, he was probably like, "That's that's cool." He was just kind of sensitive to all sound and everything grabbed him. He'd be like, "That's that's weird. What is that? You know, show me that." But he was kind of calling on the students too to kind of had, have some method and understanding of what they were doing with the idea that if you understand what you're doing, you can expand on it. You can, you can make it something more than just that little thing that, that you found, maybe got lucky and keep getting lucky doing something. But what is it? He would you know, challenge us to figure out how to build on what the little that we could play. Being around him with, with yeah. that was just like, man, he just makes you sound better. How does he do that? What is the secret to that? What is that, that like? So inspiring. Yeah. yeah, it was amazing. And we just take a tune and he would play it and he would say, let's play it in some different keys, try some different tempos. And that was his whole thing about getting inside the music, knowing the music better. It wasn't like about having a bunch of, sh a bunch of things you could play, a bunch of tricks and stuff. It was like, go into the song, go into the, into the tunes, go into the music and get deeper into the forms of, of, of what you're dealing with. And, uh, Did he talk about getting a sound on the guitar? Did he talk about how he approached, especially his right hand is just such an amazing, yeah, <laughs> so loose and where he picked and everything and that, that yeah. kind of full-bodied acoustic tone he would get. Did he yeah. talk a little well, bit about was, that? He would, he would talk about it a little bit, just but more in terms of observing other people's sound. Like I was you know, really okay. enjoying how uh, he would talk about Bill Frizzell and Schofield, how they played, picked in different parts of the, uh, yeah. along the strings. So and a different timbre that, that came through that, but he did that and, and was very conscious of, you know, the sound he was making on the instrument and the connection to the, you know. To the right hand. And, to and the to, wood, yeah, yeah, I mean, everything, left hand too, and just yeah. in terms of how articulate, how much you would articulate and slides and slurs, yeah. and he would say, really work on different ways of playing melodies and how, and how much you, uh, Know, do you pick every note or do you you know he, he was aware of he had the same you know obstacles to phrasing sure. things that you know and he would always talk about the things that he was felt like he was deficient on you know and different things like that and would say like yeah a lot of it is you have to work on the things that you're uh, that you need to work on but he also was like part of uh, part of it also was knowing how to put your best foot forward you know what I mean like play to your strengths like right. work on your Strengthen your strengths. I mean, strengthen right. your weaknesses too. But I think he he exhibited that. Like, you know, you would think of upon first listen, like, oh, he doesn't have a lot of technique. But he had an incredible technique because he was able to play what he heard, and he yeah. heard so much. It was just a it wasn't a velocity type of technique, but it was an incredible technique of connecting ears to hands. You Absolutely, know, that, that kind of technique. So Absolutely, yeah. But and again, he had no exercises. He wasn't like, guys, work on this and play it for me next week. And right. I took a few private lessons with him, and it was the same thing, just like, let's play a tune and let's it play loose. it. It's incredible. I mean, obviously, the influence uh, he had on you, I can hear, and, and you've really created your own kind of mix of that, uh, along with a lot of different influences. And I want to talk a little bit more um, just about kind of moving forward here in your career. So... You get through new school, you're kind of really establishing yourself on the scene in like the late 80s or so. And Late and eight, 89, we were playing at Augie's. You know, 88, yeah. 89, we were playing at Augie's and, uh, you know, got to make a record really through Larry and Bill uh, meeting this guy who was producing Maceo Parker. And they played on a Maceo Parker record in 89 right. or 90. Yeah. And then we got a, you know, the guy, the producer came to hear us at Augie's and we got a chance to record. It was basically through this great engineer who passed away, I don't know, 20 years ago now, David Baker, who was a great cat. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. He was a big fan of Bill. He knew Bill. Bill was just starting to play with Schofield. So we were lucky to get a chance to record at the end of, uh, end of 1990 and had a record out on a German label. I didn't have any sense of establishing a career. We were just like, 
playing gigs and got a chance to record. It's like, oh, that's cool. We get to hear how we sound. Yeah. You know, like. Well, as the decade went on, you ended up on tons of recordings. You know, it's it's just really amazing to see the discography that you have um, throughout your career, but especially starting in in the '90s. You know, you were on a lot of different record dates. It's such a such a wonderful thing to get to experience. You know, not every jazz guitarist kind of gets to experience. Uh, being on on record dates, uh, and and certainly, you know, more the contemporary younger guys now, that's less of a thing that happens. And so, the question I wanted to ask you was, you touched on it a little bit when we first started talking, but just how that experience at that point in your life, being on so many different record dates, how that kind of shaped your playing, or how that kind of influenced your style. Well, I was just trying to get as comfortable as I could playing in the studio as we all do, as we all do every time. <laughs> you know, it's right. kind of like the first time every time you do it in a way, but at that time, just, you know, it was more about just the company I was keeping, getting a chance to record with Lou Donaldson and, and Dr. Lonnie, yeah. and, uh, and then, you know, the thing with Larry and Bill, we got to record, and then I'm a couple years later, or next year, I met uh, Jerry Teakins from Crisscross. I was lucky to get on a Brian Lynch record. That was my first yeah, day for Crisscross. Yeah. And Mel Ryan was on that date. And so Jerry Teakins uh, was hip enough to know who Melvin Ryan was and said, well, why don't you guys come back, you know, tomorrow and do a trio date? Uh, It was like he was excited to have Melvin there. You know, it's like, Melvin, we have the studio again tomorrow. Why don't you? So I was just in the right place, the right time to be part of Melvin's recording group. And that led to a lot of different dates on Criss Cross. But to try to answer your question, it was just like, try to play the best you can. I mean, there was the sense of, you know, I didn't, you know, I wasn't that nervous. I was just kind of excited to be there. I mean, I would be nervous to like, when Melvin wanted to record, you know, Trick Bag, and I never learned, you know, didn't have that melody together, and Kenny Washington was there. It's like, no, we can't do it slower. If anything, we have to do it faster than the record, you know? So it was kind of like, learn the tune in the studio. But I mean, I kind of knew the record, but it's just one wasn't one that I had learned and just that bridge yeah, yeah. and you it was at the work. end of the session too we were like we're all retired and then we like, need one more tune how about something fast and trick bag <laughs> so I remember just the panic of learning that tune in the studio right before we <laughs> recorded it you know of course cursing myself for not having learned it really learned right. it before but yeah. just one that I didn't have under my fingers and just the pressure but just trying to like well I did the best I could I mean and and whatever I I mean I was having a lot of trouble just playing tempos of any you know past a certain point at all, especially in those days more so in those days and uh, that that was the thing of just like how to try to play within my technique what I could do and make some kind of coherent musical statement you know and recording knowing that it was going to be preserved and you might have to hear it back someday mm-hmm. uh, would just be like try to be a, I mean. You know, it wasn't all on me. I didn't have to carry the whole song, but I had to right. comp and I had to play a little bit that yeah. hopefully would contribute to the overall thing of the tune. It was definitely helped me learn how to, you know, learn what it was about. Try to step in there and be a be a voice in the music. That that's all. And and of course, at the time, you know, I, I had a lot of my influences, and I'd be conscious of, like, this is kind of a Jim Hall. I'd have Jim Hall in my head, or I'd have Grant yeah. in my head, or if I'm playing with Lou and Lonnie, I'm thinking of, you know, you can't help but not think of George Benson and people that were... But the, the whole idea was like, well, I, I can't be those guys. I have to do what I can do. And But it's a, it's a growing process, and a lot, it happened... It's documented on records for me of, like, kind of like, okay, that was okay. That was kind of a glimmer of an idea... <laughs> you know, but but Jace, basically the guy's still got somebody else in his head when he's playing. So whatever. I mean, it's all subjective. Some people will say, you know, oh, you got to play with those guys. You know, that puts you in some kind of. Yes, I was lucky to be there. But other people will be like, no, I heard those original guys. Nah, and this guy will never be like those. I mean, no in both sides. No it has to do with what where people are coming from what they think of it you know I was very aware of my good fortune whatever the result of of having these experiences because I knew that it was making me a stronger musician and that this was a way to get to some sense of myself and and hopefully that'll happen you know I was just thinking at that time like hopefully I'll you know I'll get to make another record I'm get I've made a few records this year and this is exciting I have another one coming up in in a couple of months and you know maybe I can I can do better on that one and just more Get, yeah. you know, but it was always about how you felt socially too. Like with Larry and Bill, we felt we had a thing as a group, and it was about capturing 
what we had as a group. My part being as, you know, one part of that. But right. so then I was in the studio with different guys, crisscross dates, and let's try to capture what what felt good at the rehearsal yesterday, or what you know what can be you know. And it was a collective thing, and I, yeah. I was aware of my you know how did I do kind of thing, but also was like how did the record turn out? How did it feel to play with everybody? Right, it was such a natural way of of learning good music, you know, really being yeah. able to understand how it sounds on recording back and kind yeah. of focus in on that while you're Absolutely. playing. It's just, it's just wonderful to hear that. Well, um, there are so many recordings that you sound so great on back in the day, all the way up until what you're doing now. Uh, I want to just take a moment if we can to highlight one of them. The one I was mentioning a little earlier, Larry Golding's trio record, Moonbird, and you're playing on that. It had such a big influence on me when I first heard it. And I think a lot of other guitar players as well. So if we could just play a clip of that, I'd love to do that, Peter, if that's okay. Right, sure. I never heard that. I don't know. I never listened to the. It's faster than we than we play when we play that song lately. We always play a little bit slower than that. It's funny to hear it faster. But I think that was right. You say that was ninety nine. I think I had just gotten my Zyler guitar then. I was going to ask you about that. Um, I, I we wanted to kind of get into the different guitars that you've sort of played throughout your careers, but. Um, a short conversation. We're just going yeah. <laughs> to uh, try and just take a quick moment here uh, for a little bit of a break. Is that sure. okay? A little Union 5? Sure. We can just check Five everything. Five minutes is cool. Yeah. Uh, okay. So all you listeners out there, just hang tight. We'll be back with the great Peter Bernstein in a short moment. Today's podcast is brought to you by Marchione Guitars, handcrafted instruments made by luthier extraordinaire Stephen Marchione. I have two of his guitars. I have the 59 Semi Hollow and I have the OM Acoustic. They play amazing. They sound like nothing else. Completely resonant across the whole body. Uh, wide frets, just so many overtones, so much beautiful sound coming out of these instruments. All made personally by Stephen by hand. Check them out at marchioneguitars.com. 
We're with the one and only Peter Bernstein. We're trying to talk a little bit about the different guitars he's played. I'm going to pass it off to John's story here. I know he's got some questions. Oh, do I? Man. And Pete, again, it's such an honor. You know, when I heard you, I had just got into jazz. I was like 13. It was at the end of jazz camp. Mike Denny was my teacher, who I think you knew, who was in New York. Yeah. <laughs> Oregon guitar player. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. And I heard you, and there was something about the way you played, man, that spoke to me as a kid because I, I didn't really believe I could play jazz. I thought jazz was way too hard. And the way you played was so melodic. And it was like almost like on the recording, it was like saying, yeah, you can do this. Go for it. This is how you do this. Just play really <laughs> melodic. And always curious about how players get into that first instrument. And I know you played a 175 in the early right. 90s. Was that because, like you mentioned, uh, like Will and, Will, and, Will and Perry are in the 175 club. I'm, okay. I'm, you, yeah. know, you know me, Pete, I'm an L5 guy. But did you pick that instrument because, like you mentioned, you saw Joe Pass play? Or did you just encounter that guitar at a store? Or was it a specific thing you were looking for at the time? Well, I, I just wanted to get a, a hollow body and, mm -hmm. you know, get into the, have the feeling of, uh, you know, some acoustic vibration, you know, and not be so reliant on... Right. The electric sound and you know Joe Pass. I don't even know what he was playing when I saw him play, but I just you know seeing the pictures of different guys. I didn't know much about guitars, but I went to this store on Forty Eighth Street <laughs> uh, when they had a lot of guitar stores, and there was this one. It was just a you know blonde one seventy five, six hundred dollars. Nineteen eighty three is when I got that guitar, and it was. Uh, yeah, it was just my entry into the world of feel, the vibrations, you know. But I remember when I went to study one summer with Attila Zoller, it was a great, really kind of like my first jazz teacher. He had an amazing guitar, which was, he had designed it, and it was made by Hofner, a Zoller guitar, but it was made in the Hofner factory. And I could tell right away that that guitar was way better than mine. And so I remember being up there in, like, his jazz camp for, like, a couple of days, and he had two of them, so I just played one of his guitars. So I was aware right away that my guitar wasn't. Yeah. And uh, when I I did get a once uh, uh, L5, which was kind of a problematic guitar. It was a factory second that I got through somebody I knew at knew at the Gibson Custom Shop, and the neck angle was so it was really stiff and hard to play. But it had a lot more sound than my 175, being you know not a plywood guitar and different you know only one pickup in there. So it was more it was another another level. Yeah, but very hard to play because it was very stiff, and I got I, and I had that from like '95 to '98 when I when I found this Zeidler guitar. That was another level from from you know from the 175. Just very acoustic. I'd play a chord and just hear the overtones in the notes of the chord in a different way. Yeah. Before, well, you know. you know, and funny, Zoller, he, he developed some pickups, too. And I know Jim yep. Jim put one of those in his DeQuisto for a while. That Those Hoffner guitars, those are really cool. I've played a couple of them, and you're right. Yeah. I, I played Mike Denny's L5 when I was 14, and I was at that point, I was like, I have got to get an L5. And I started yeah. saving and mowing lawns and saving and mowing lawns. And I finally got one when I was at SC. And when I took my first lesson from you in 2004, I had just got that guitar, Pete. If really? you remember, you, okay. were at the, you were at the bakery. And we did the lesson back um, in the green room there. And I pulled that guitar out of the case. And you were like, wow, that's like a brand new L5. I was like, yeah, it's a week old. And you told me then, you said, yeah, my L5, I'm not playing that anymore. You had just kind of got the Zeidler or we're getting into it. Right, and you right. were like, you told me, you said, yeah, it was a factory second. And it wasn't right. my thing. It really caught me because the way I heard you play on that guitar from like on the tribute to Grant Green record when you play Grant's tune, it's like to me, I hear Jim Hall, Wes, Grant, Kenny Burrell, all in like this just beautiful sound. And I always wondered, I guess, a question too about this, about the instrument. Did playing that L5 for you kind of dictate how you played some of those legato notes too because you're getting more resonance? I mean, I know you said that it, it was a step up from the 175. So when you're playing it, you're feeling the guitar react a little bit more. Or was, yeah. that, or was that a result of you like playing with such great horn players at the time and you were playing really legato because of that too? You were hearing it that way. I mean, it's hard to say because you're developing yeah. as the instrument is also starting to open up because it's getting played. Mm -hmm. And you, you know, you, it's, hard, it's hard to say, but I mean, I think it really... I've always tried to go from what I'm trying to hear, right, and also try to play things, and then try to hear what I what I play. And yeah, man. Not just you know, but 
the, that guitar was more, uh, definitely had more acoustic sound than my 175, but I still like my 175. I just want, I felt like I needed, you know, yeah, another step. I don't know if the L, L5 for me was the, the best fit, and, you know, I think just like any guitar that I've ever played, maybe it felt good some days and not other days. And yeah. the biggest variable in, the, in that would be me in those feeling good or not feeling good, because the instrument is just inanimate. It's just what you, you know, the longer you play an instrument, the more you get to learn how to, you know, yeah. how to touch it, how to, how to well, and, but at the same time, yeah. I think uh, it's, I, when I see students that are talented but have a really crappy instrument, I say you really have to get a better instrument so that you don't, like, you're, you want to be able to play up to your instrument. You want your instrument to be like, have things that it can teach you about your own playing. And if you have a crappy guitar that you're always compensating for, you're missing out on that, that sense of like, this is what it feels like when a guitar responds to you. So yeah. you're going to get better playing the guitar. That's what I felt when I picked up the designer. was like, oh, this guitar is kicking my ass because it's just showing everything that I'm not playing strong comes out really not strong. You know what I mean? Everything, everything that you kind of hesitate about. And hearing on that recording, I think like it had a bigger sound, but at the same time, it, it, it hadn't opened up as much yet. And I hadn't, you know, it just was a while before I could felt more comfortable playing playing this guitar. It just takes it takes a while. As you're developing, you're also developing the relationship with the instrument, yeah. and the instrument is changing because it's getting played. But I think really it's 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 mind over matter. Like it's, it's more about what you're trying to play and what you're hearing in your head and the choices you make musically. You know, and you're adjusting to how the instrument feels. But yeah. You know, I've many times I've never been one of, I've never been one of these guys that can pick up any guitar and play it. Like I'll just pick up a guitar and play a couple notes. Say, I would rather not play a whole tune on this guitar. You know, like I just don't. But I've seen people just pick up a guitar and just get to. They don't care. And I've always been. I've never been able to do that just because I had close relationships with my instrument, even when they were, uh, you know, not perfect. You know. Yeah, man. But I, I, love I want that. the feeling. I want the, the tension that I want, the resistance that I'm expecting to have. You know, that's the only way I can get into any kind of phrasing or any kind of nuance is like what's pushing back on me is, you know, what, I'm, what I've engineered it to do, you know, in terms of action or the string gauge or just whatever, you know, the resistance to what you're giving it, you know. Yeah, and maybe that's a good transition too to Will's question because like playing the Zeidler, I'm sure, brought out a lot of just the sound that you're getting on your instrument, this way you play approach solo guitar too. I know Will had some questions about about that as well. Yeah. Um, Pete, we've never got to formally meet, but I mean, uh, needless yeah. to say, I feel like I know you uh, inside and out with how much music of yours I've listened to. Um, I discovered you listening to Something's Burning and of course Signs of Life. Nice. And yeah. uh, and and the Melvin Ryan stuff, like your version of Love for Sale, I totally started playing Love for Sale in like oh. six eight for, oh, that, we, that, for right. a solid couple years just because of that that stellar album. Maybe just to hone in a little on your on your solo playing, and and we actually have a track queued up from your your solo album that we've all listened to a bunch. But the sound that you get and your dynamic playing and and the way you 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 know when you strike a chord versus when you're playing single melodies, just like to pick your brain a little bit about your connection to these, to the tunes, to the right. standards playing solo. I mean, I'd always been afraid of playing solo to the point of like living in fear if someone would say, okay, why don't we just have, uh, you know, guitar intro. And I would just be like, just me. Like I would really have, live in fear of having to play. If someone said, yeah, eight bars, give me eight bars, four bars, you know. Slightly less fear, but still, even just any intro where I had to, anything where I had to play by myself, I was in mortal fear about it, just because I didn't, you know, I didn't feel comfortable in that. I felt so exposed and naked, and so it, over the years, I tried to work out some tunes and just little, not chord and melody, but just little ways of treating a tune, but only for myself, and would really not go go out of my way not to have to play by myself on the, in public. And then uh, ten more than ten years ago. Smalls was having these early uh, kind of like happy hour solo piano gigs. And it was a thing where all the piano players in town were kind of, you know, playing from like 6 to 7.30 or something like that. And so I just asked Spike one day, how come you never have solo guitar, you know? 
And he's like, I don't know. No one ever asked. And, you know, you want to do it? And I was kind of like, I wasn't even thinking of myself. I was just kind of like, hey, how come you're hooking up all the piano players? I'm like, give a guitar. Not even for myself. And he was like, yeah, you can do it if you want. And so then I, you know, thought about it. And I was like, well, I should try to do it. I should try to confront the thing that scares me the most. And I figured, you know, maybe if I can get through a whole set, then then eight bars four bar intro yeah. won't terrify me as much because it'll just be a small percentage of of uh of that so i just tried to do it and i didn't really go with many plan you know much of a plan except a couple little type arrangement type things that i had worked out on some tunes partially worked out i always had like most of a, of the melody kind of a way to play it but then i'd always you know feel like well i can't work out a whole like i don't know What's next? I'm going to have to improvise at some point and try to play by myself. So that was the, the whole thing about, about that was just trying to, you know, the sonic void of playing by yourself where you don't hear anything if, if you're not playing. And, and really what it did was make me appreciate the conversation I get to have with people even more and just try to look at the ways of what can I do by myself that I can't really do with other people instead of trying to play by myself and feel the whole time that wishing people were there which I did I mean a lot of times I, I remember doing it one time and just like there happened to be a clock at that time on the wall like I remember looking up there and like thinking like oh man this is I'm not up for this today I really should have called a bass player like I can't, I'm not gonna make it I wonder how much time has gone by I looked back and like six minutes had gone by it was like two <laughs> tunes and I just felt so you know demoralized like what am I doing I have no I have no business doing this you know I can't well I gotta so, say man you're I, it doesn't sound that way. Well, we you're very to nice it. to say that, but I mean, I remember feeling, and it, every time I did it, there'd be like, for eight bars, I felt like, okay, that this could work. You know, like maybe I could do, if I could just, I don't know what was happening. Was I just concentrating in those eight bars and not, you know, listening to the static that was going on or the, you know, all whatever else was going on in my head. I always felt encouraged enough to try it again. And so the record came about just because, uh, Spike was recording groups, and the group coming in after me was going to record. So the mics were set up, and uh, Spike was like, "Why don't we just record it? I'll just tell the engineer to come in, you know, for your set at six o'clock, and just turn on the microphones." I was like, "Okay, cool. Well, there's nothing to lose. I'm just not planning on making a record, but if you have the things there, and it's just digital, doesn't matter. You know, it's not like tape." So I just did it, and we ended up doing like uh, they had to record for two nights. So I did the two nights of the early group switched with someone else you know to so I would have two nights in a row to keep and just and just try to get some stuff but I remember thinking after the first night and even the second night too like whatever if I ever make a solo record I'll I'll do it in the studio and it's a little more you know contained and I can just stop and start and it's a little more well man we love it less 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 crazy but then as it turned out uh you know, I didn't listen to it, but I did. I did like this change my mind uh, to twit it out just because I. It's a strange story, but I had to get a root canal, and oh, wow. uh, oh, and shit. that was my. You know, like I was kind of like, Spike. The timing of it was such that Spike was like, "Have you listened to those tapes yet?" He, you know, he sent me the things. Like, nah, I'm not gonna. I don't think so, man. Never mind. So, well, my friend Eve was here. Our, our friend Eve Brokey, a great guitar player from Paris, and he. You know, I, I let him hear a couple of tracks. He said, it's really good. I'm like, okay, great. Thanks, Eve. You know, what a nice guy. And then like two days later, I got this terrible toothache. And then I went to the dentist a couple of days later and they said, you need a root canal. And then meanwhile, another call from Spike was like, have you listened to those things yet? And I'm like, he's like, Eve will listen to it if you don't want to. I'm like, yeah, maybe that's a good idea. Maybe I can get my root canal and that will pay for the root canal. And then instead of having to listen to it, I'll just get the root canal. And Eve will, you know, co you know, producer credit or whatever, you know, he didn't end up wanting to be, but like Eve can just choose the takes. So that's how I, that's how I justified wow. putting out that record. It wasn't like I need to make a solo statement. It was more like, you know, I've, I have to get, I have to go to the dentist. I have a root so canal. I just looked at it like I absolved myself from choosing takes because I had the experience of the root canal, which was bad enough. But still preferable to listening to <laughs> two nights of solo guitar. So that's why it's a record. So the people like it. I just, you know, Spike, you know, I, mean, I knew it was super raw and like, but maybe people could l like it, you know, or not raw right, enough, man. depending on what your perspective is. But like, I was just We're like... glad you released it. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, so. man. I just, that's the story behind it. And, and I still try to play solo and confront that, that challenge a little bit and try to get more comfortable with it. But it's, it's, 
it's really hard. It's a really difficult thing that that makes you address your touch on the instrument, and and uh, you know, for better or for worse, that's it's out there. There's just That's so much insane. language and time and groove. It's all it's all in there. You know, thank you for all the music thank that you've you. given us because it's, uh, um, you know, that, that's yeah. I echo that and that that solo uh, stuff is really badass. We appreciate your humble nature, but no, let's let's give credit where it's due here. Amen. Yeah. Um, I, I have just a that. just a few last little questions for you. Um, again, thank you so much for making the time for us here. It's, it's really exciting for us to have you on our thank podcast. You. Can you give me like some of your desert island uh, jazz guitar records? Like if you know if you were stranded, what, what what would be the top five, top ten on your list right off right off your head? Wow. Well, I mean, yeah, I can only go on the ones that you know. I would want with me for for comfort, you know, like <laughs> the ones yeah, that yeah. Uh, so, you know started me off in a way. But uh, well, certainly smoking at the half note with Wes, all the Charlie Christian, especially the live, you know, live admittance stuff with Charlie Christian, yeah. that's still inspiring. I mean, always, always uh, gets me. I remember Jim Hall talking about that too. Like he, he, he remember he, he talked about hearing that his Charlie Christian solo with Benny Goodman, the Grand Slam on that blues, and remembered the first time he heard it on the radio and he says he still gets the same feeling when he heard it you know 60 years later or whatever just like how how music can just work its way into your uh, your consciousness yeah so uh while well, talking about jim hall i would definitely say the bridge if that's considered a jazz yeah. guitar record just because he's playing that on that counts. plus sunny you know was just blew my head open and kenny burrell and coltrane that was a huge thing the, the, those that those dates with uh, tommy flanagan and some most of us with jimmy cobb Kenny Burrell and Train playing together and you know just that affected me Grant Green uh, there's so many Grant Green records that I, I, know. That I love you know I would you know Matador is my you know and Solid was the kind of the first Grant I heard that, yeah. that record Solid with Joe Henderson and Spaulding and same rhythm section McCoy Elvin and Cranshaw so and of course the stuff the Grant stuff with the organ of course George Benson Cookbook you know it's actually yeah. it's Uptown was the was the one I knew better than Cookbook of George Benson okay. Lonnie and Ronnie Cuber uh, George is playing on Willow Weep for me like oh you know that's God. those are like the you know those are those are the things and you know yeah so so much else of players that have affected me was was more based on experiences seeing them live like seeing Joe Pass live that one time and. You know, the guys like more recently or more recently in the past 25, 30 years that I've gone to see a lot like Schofield and, and Bill yeah. Frizzell and, and just like, you know, all, all the guys, my, my, my peers too, you know. So uh, that's great. That's but for records, was... though, it ha would have to be the ones that just kind of, you know, to take me back to that place. Because I, I always enjoy hearing how they sound different to me as my ears have changed, you know, and I can hear other parts of the music better was when i was just studying them i was so focused on the guitar i mean not really i mean i love Wynton kelly and the feeling of the rhythm section on uh smoking at the half note but i can just like i was focused on the guitar because that was what was you know blowing my mind in terms of what's he doing you know and, but now i can i, I it's, it's good to hear stuff over as your ears change you know well, listen, I, I really want to be respectful uh, of your time. We oh, could talk to you thanks. literally for another couple of hours, but we're, <laughs> we're going to try to wrap it up here. And uh, it's just been 
such a pleasure speaking with you, Peter. Thank you for doing um, Thank you guys. this podcast. You've, you've really long inspired all of us and many other guitar players out there. So for people that are listening, go buy albums from Peter Bernstein. He's got lots of great stuff out there, tons of recordings he's on. You can purchase uh, a lot of that information is on his website, peterbernsteinmusic.com. Uh, Peter, it's been an honor. Thank you for joining us on High Thank Action. You. Thanks for having me. And, and what keep keep what you what you guys are doing. You know, keep up with that. I was telling John after we, you know, it's nice to see. And and it's strange for me to feel like, you know, an elder to you guys, but because I always feel, you know, we're all in it together trying to learn how to play. But it's just nice to see it being perpetuated on such a high level. What you guys Thank are you. Doing. Sure. Thanks for all you've given us, Thank man. You, man. Be well. Have a great week, Pete. Thanks. See you around, you man. We'll, we'll, be, right. we'll be in touch, Pete, for sure. All right. All right. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Late, man. See ya. Thanks again for joining us for another exciting edition of High Action. We'd like to take this moment to thank our sponsors for making this podcast possible, especially those who follow us on Patreon. If you'd like to join us, visit us at www.patreon.com slash newwestguitargroup. There you can subscribe monthly to our Patreon page and get exclusive content from today's podcast. Lastly, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts for all the future episodes. Once again, I'm John Story with New West Guitar Group, and thanks for joining us on High Action.